We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. In the UK, by the age of 44, 20% of women do not have children. The figures are slightly higher for men, 25% of men over 42. If that's what your choice is, that's fine. But what if you always thought you were going to have children, but life, being in the wrong relationship at the wrong time or medical issues, have got in the way? In a society that puts being a mother or a father at the centre of a meaningful life, what is it like to be child-free? Especially for women who are often looked on with pity by their friends with children. My guest is psychotherapist Jodie Day, who is the founder of Gateway Women, a global support network for childless women, and the author of Living the Life Unexpected, How to Find Hope, Meaning and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, and what a great title, because we're all living the life unexpected. But how old were you when you realised you were not going to have children, and what was your reaction? Hello, it's great to be on the show with you, Andrew. I was 44 and a half when I realised for sure that I was definitely not going to be a biological mother. And it came after a long journey, both a journey of infertility in my first marriage. And then when that ended in my late 30s, a sort of a desperate search for someone to, quote, find someone and do IVF. That was my mission didn't even really understand that it was unlikely to work at that age because the statistics are so set against you once you get into your late 30s and early 40s, which we don't really realise until we seek it out. And at 44 and a half, I had just broken up from my sort of second post-divorce relationship. I was on my own in a grotty studio flat, what used to be called a bedsit in the old days, sort of on a dreary, rainy February afternoon just sort of staring out of the window, watching raindrops come down through, make tracks down through the dusty window. And it was just like, that's it. I'm never going to be a mum. And it was a profound realisation that moment because it was as if two paths in my life converged. And it was quite a physical feeling that came sort of from my belly of there was one part of me, there was Jodie who was going to be a mum. And all of the planning and dreaming and everything that she'd been doing and all of the preparation, psychological, emotional, practical, I'd been doing to make that a reality. And then the other track was the life I was actually living. And for the first time in many years, they actually came together. And I had a sort of, it was an epiphany. I had a moment of peace, maybe about 10, 15 minutes of peace when I thought, wow, you know, when I was 20, and I thought of the next 30 years of my life, I thought, well, I can do anything. I can be anything. I just have to set myself up for it. You know, with the the vanity, egotism and ignorance of youth, I thought that's all that was required. 
And then I thought, you know, why can't the next 30 years be like that as well? You know, why can't I direct myself into a different kind of life? And so I went and made myself a cup of tea in the kitchen and outside my window was a children's playground because I'm not quite sure what it is about when you're childless, but you always seem to live next to a playground. And I kind of felt a little bit of hope. And I'm really glad I felt that hope because kind of later that afternoon, really the ground opened up from underneath me and I fell into a pit of profound despair where I remained for a few years because I didn't know it was grief and nobody I spoke to knew it was. And also nobody would let me talk about my pain. All they would talk to me about is, oh, you you know, you can have one on your own. I couldn't, you know, you've still got time. You could just adopt, don't give up all of this, but nobody would actually go, gosh, this is really, really hard for you, isn't it? And I went, nobody would have that conversation with me. That also included therapists. It's interesting you say that because I have clients in exactly the same position. And not only will nobody listen, but they felt a profound sadness that was no ritual for actually dealing with this. Because, you know, if somebody you love dies, you know, there's a funeral and everybody knows what to do. Mm -hmm. And this is a death, but there's nothing. I mean, they said, why isn't there a ritual? And I said, well, we're going to create a ritual together Mm -hmm. then in that case. And we're about halfway through creating it. But it is a profound, profound sadness. And I think it's uh, wonderful that you've explained it in that way. Thank you. I mean, I've done rituals myself with childless women. I've done them for myself and I outline them in my book for anyone who kind of wants to have an idea about how to create one for themselves or others. One of the reasons this is such a an unspoken loss, and as you say, there aren't any rituals around it, is because it's a form of what's called disenfranchised grief. I mean, that's a term that comes from Kenneth Doker's work from the late 80s. And it's a grief that it is not socially acceptable to experience, to talk about, or to request support for. So there's a reason why there's nothing around it. There are other forms of disenfranchised grief as well. But this is a very, very big one that is growing in our society. You know, grief is a social emotion. It exists in connection. And if nobody will connect with you, you can't really mourn. You just get stuck in grief. And I'm beginning to think there might be a bit of a complicated relationship with hope as well, because it Mm. sounds like you'd been sort of living on hope for quite a long time. And in a sense, we all live on hope that, you know, something better is going to turn up. Mm. And then suddenly you've got a very complicated relationship with hope. Help me understand this. Yes. Well, I mean, hope in a way is a form of denial. I mean, it's a kind of a belief about reality that we actually have no control over. And probably the first stage of grief is losing hope. Yet, if you say to people that you've given up hope, you'll be interesting. People get very panicky. Oh, you can't give up hope because actually they're feeling how terrible that must feel. You know, we are empathic creatures, whether we know it or not, whether we're skilled at explaining it or not, we feel each other's feelings. And when you feel someone feeling hopeless, it's really scary So you say you can't give up hope and then you try to give them false hope, which is what in the childless and child-free community we call bingos. Oh, right. (laughs) Children aren't all they're cracked up to me. Here, have one of mine. Oh, you dodged a bullet. Oh, you get to sleep in and travel, you know, or if you look young enough, oh, you've still got time. 
And I love that idea that hope is a form of denial because actually if you say to people, I've come out of denial, then yeah. they all start saying, brilliant, congratulations. Yes. And it's the reframing sounds to be quite important. It is. The introduction to the second edition of my book is all about reframing our relationship with hope because we need hope. You know, being human is extremely complicated. Hope is really a story. It's a story about ourselves and a story about our the future that we hope to create. And if you have no idea of what your future can be, if you have no goals at all and nothing to look forward to, it's a deep place of existential despair. So we have to form a new relationship with hope. And I think the hope that I found and that I help other people find through my work is kind of a hope of a good and meaningful life without children. And our culture does not reflect back that possibility. So it's a really, really deep process to find it for ourselves. Well, not only does it not reflect it back, what it gives is all sorts of horrible images. So the archetypes are all negative. It's spinster, career woman, stroke crazy cat woman, mm. bunny boiler, and witch. I mean, None of them are particularly appealing. I mean, the witch could be quite fun, you know, casting spells and dancing around the bonfire, but it's not super attractive, is it? Well, no, it's very interesting. The, the archetypes, if we unpack them, and um, I do this in my work and in the Reignite Weekend workshop, we can actually see that if you really, really look at every single quality that attaches to those archetypes, and then you reverse them from their dark aspects to their light aspects, you see that underneath all of them is actually a fear of female power liberated from motherhood. Because, for example, a spinster, you know, I ask people, what do you associate with the word spinster? And it will be unchosen, smelly, lives alone, not very nice, you know, sad, weird, all of these really unpleasant things. And I'll say, okay, so imagine that we flip that and we look at the light, positive attributes potentially of a spinster. We get educated, liberated, generous, creative, you know, nurturing, someone who's had lots of adventures, who's empowered, who's, you know, you've been to, you've been, oh, the energy starts to change in the room. You do that with every single archetype and you see under all of them, I haven't tried to do this with the bunny boiler. I'm not convinced there are that many in there, but that's really in a part of the spinster archetype. And also that her childlessness has driven her crazy, which is this other idea, a bit mad. But, you know, even the witch, what is the light attributes of the witch? Are magical, powerful, wise, liberated, a leader. You know, they're pretty powerful things. They'd organise a really good ritual for you, wouldn't they? Yes. And a damn good party. It's confession time here because I think this does affect men because when people ask me if I have children, I feel slightly ashamed when I say no. Mm. I'm sorry that shame attaches to that. I think for men, my colleague, Dr. Robin Hadley, is kind of the UK academic who's done the most work around involuntary childlessness in men. And he's written a wonderful book called How Is a Man Supposed to Be a Man, which is a, an academic book and also very readable book about male involuntary childlessness. And I think the across the life course, it can become really troublesome for men, particularly as they age, because, you know, there is also some negative attributes that attach to men as they age if they're not childless, unless they have, you know, they're not even really seen as safe around children. And 
I'm interested in the idea that you feel shame. Does it seem like you're not in step with your peers or it's something, you know, that you would have been a more mature person if you become a parent? What is the story you're telling yourself under the shame? Mm, that's a very good question. I haven't really thought about that. Let me have a let me have a think. I think it's back to the sort of weird and strange department mm. that somehow you haven't fulfilled your obligations right. to society that, you know, childless people are sort of, you know, they're the sort of ones that are damning the planet by flying all over the world and who cares about the next generation sort of kind of feeling. Mm. Well, underneath those feelings is an ideology called pronatalism. Pronatalism is underpinning all of this, um, the glorification of parenthood and the denigration of non-parenthood. I don't have anything against people who become parents at all, but it is a biological process. You know, it doesn't make them automatically better people. And I think that what pronatalism does is it creates a valuation system between people who are parents and people who are not. And it says that being a parent is the right way and the proper way to be a proper adult and that people without children aren't really proper adults. And also I think that they are not contributing to society in some way, that we're somehow freeloading. When in actual fact, you know, all my working life, I've paid taxes which have built the hospitals and the schools and provided everything that other people's children need. And I do so willingly as part of my civic duty, you know, as a citizen and also my sense of, you know, community as a human. You know, I know that the world needs children and that parents need support. They actually need more support than they're getting, not less. But the idea that people without children are not contributing is really, really insidious because we actually have more time to contribute in other ways. And childless people, and particularly single childless women, contribute more to political campaigns and do more voluntary work than any other section of the population. And they also do the less sexy sort of voluntary work. And we don't get any thanks for it or any notice for it. Whereas interestingly, a lot of the voluntary work that people with children do is around supporting their children's or the, or the children's school's activities. So they're very focused on, on the next generation and their own biological generation. And to your idea that, you know, we want the world to burn and we don't give a damn about it, I really take issue with that idea because I, and I'd love to talk about it later because I think I can be a good ancestor in other ways. And my care for future generations is not about me having biological skin in the game. It is a genuine altruistic care for future generations. What I sort of tell myself when I do get into that negative space, which I, I mean, doesn't happen very often, that I, my fathering energy goes into different directions. You know, mm. if my clients need the light side of father, I've got it in spades to offer. Not all clients do yeah. want it, but a lot of clients do. And so it can be put in other directions. Absolutely. I, I would say the same. I mean, my, my mother's heart is very busy. <laughs> it's very engaged in the world. And that fathering energy, that healthy fathering energy that you talk about is something that is so precious. And I can feel already how you share it. And that's valuable. That has meaning and value. Thank you. So let's go back to the topic that we started talking mm. about, which was how you deal with the grief and the burned out dreams. Well, there is no shortcut. You know, we have to mourn. And one of the difficulties we've already established is finding that out, 
that that's what we're experiencing and then finding a place to do that. You know, grief is a dialogue, not a monologue. So we have to find a place, a connection where we can talk. And then that can be online. I mean, Gateway Women has an online community. It's been going over 10 years that has helped thousands and thousands of women with this. So it's not necessarily that you need to look in someone's eyes, but you need to be able to speak about your experience or write about your experience without censoring yourself about what someone will think about you and have that sense of someone going, me too, or somehow empathically reflecting back to you that they understand your experience and they validate with it. And then grief can start to move because grief is the emotion that comes up to help us deal with irrevocable loss. It is an absolutely profound transformational experience. It turns us from the person who doesn't think we can live without this thing to someone who can live in the world and move forward in their life without the thing they thought they couldn't live without. I mean, that that is the most profound shift in our self-concept and our internal world. And grief doesn't always, it's not always about sadness. There's a lot of creativity in grief. There's a lot of connection. There's an awful lot of deep relational work because one of the things that gets lost often with a big grief is the loss of the assumptive worldview. So, you know, if you have a faith and we all have a faith, whether it is a sort of a religious faith or not, we have a story about how the world works. And childlessness, infertility, and all losses can rip that belief out from underneath us. And I think for me, I was holding on to a sort of an unchallenged childhood belief that somehow if I was a good person, if I was a nice person, if I turned the other cheek, if I paid my taxes, if I was kind of a responsible human being, that somehow good things would happen to me. And, you know, I'd already been through, you know, losing my marriage to my my infertility and my husband's addictions. And, you know, then I kind of was dealing with childlessness and I'd had a lot of trauma in my childhood as well. But childlessness really just like, no, it doesn't matter. It's almost like grief finds all the fault lines in your life and blows them open, which is horrible because actually you were dealing with not just the loss of the child, but mm. you know the loss of the marriage. There was the childhood trauma coming back there as well. And that sounds really terrible because, you know, you're in a bad place and suddenly all the old stuff is coming back. But I always talk about Pandora's box, mm. how you open Pandora's box and the furies of the world come out. And, you know, grief is like the furies of the world coming out. But what people forget in the message is when all the furies had come out, there was, oh, it's a word we're not very keen mm. on at the moment in this particular podcast, hope. But there is the potential of something new coming out. And Absolutely. you're not just, it's not just going to be something new that is going to be a sticking plaster new. It's going to be something, if you're going to do this right and you're going to allow yourself to have the grief, there's going to address not just, in your case, the childlessness and the, the marriage issue, mm. but also the, the childhood trauma as well, because they're all part of the same parcel and you can't just do one bit of it, can you? No, you can't. And yeah, hope is left at the box and we need hope. I don't have a problem with hope, but actually when we lose hope about, around having children, as you say, it does, 
it, it does lift a trap door into everything else. <laughs> and I used to describe it as when you discover that hell has a basement. And <laughs> I think process of transformation that grief takes you through is one that is not without cost because many of those cherished beliefs about yourself and others and how the world work as they fall away and you address the issues underneath them, you often discover that as you change, relationships around you change, your beliefs about yourself and what you would like to keep in your life change. And that can be incredibly hard for you and also for the people around you. Because what they want is they want you to be fixed and back to how you were before, but there is no going back. And grief burns all the bridges behind you. You don't get to go back. That's why it's such a profoundly transformative experience is because at the end of it, you don't even want the bridges back. But it is important that you actually stay with the grief. Otherwise, you get trapped in this sort of no man's land where everything's burnt out and there's no crops left sort of thing. And that does happen if you don't have support around it, because we cannot grieve on our own in our heads, in our rooms with a book and a journal. It has to be relational. And without that relational support, particularly if our grief has opened the door onto other losses and traumas, you know, it can be a destabilizing experience that we can get stuck in for a long time. So it seems important to liberate ourselves from the expectations of other people, mm. which sort of rather trips off the tongue nicely. Liberate ourselves from the expectations of other people. Um, <laughs> how do you do that? Very painfully, <laughs> either quite slowly and then very fast. I think there is a recalibration of all our relationships. Probably the person we first have to liberate our expectations from is ourself. And the mm -hmm. stories that we've been carrying about what it means to be us and what a good life looks like to us and what a good person looks like to us. And as we do that, the relationships around us will start to shift. We won't be able to stop them. And I think to kind of completely liberate ourselves from the expectations of others is probably not possible. I think probably one would be a sociopath or a narcissist if you completely managed it, because we are relational creatures. We long to belong and to exist in groups. It's where we find our safety as a species is to be part of a group. So I guess it's probably finding new groups where you can experiment and try out these new parts of yourself also the kind of the internal family group. You know, we all have many stories and people inside us who have expectations for us. We have to come into a new relationship with them too. So it's definitely not a one and done process and I'm not sure I'm ever going to be there. And I care about the opinions of others. I've just changed whose opinions I care about. So I'm thinking you're probably going to have to think about your relationship with your mother because mm. for two things, one, mothers have a great commitment to grandchildren, so there's all of that to be dealt with. Your attitudes to being a mother is probably going to be framed in some way by your own relationship with your mother mm. and then equally, you've got to change the relationship with the, as you've just put it, the inner mother as, mm. as well. But I think you have to start with the outer mother. How did you approach changing your relationship with your mother? 
my experience is unique, obviously, but I I didn't have a good relationship with my mum. I'm the unmothered daughter of an unmothered daughter. So uh. um, classic early training to become a psychotherapist. <laughs> and, <laughs> so my mum was not maternal. She had me accidentally as a teenager. She didn't know how to be a mother. I grew up thinking I didn't want children because I associated having children with having my childhood, which was really not great. And so when I actually got pregnant accidentally when I was 20, I was terrified. And really I was terrified of mothering as I had been mothered. And the partner I was with was very supportive. You know, he he would have been quite happy for us to have had the baby. He would have been a wonderful dad. He went on to be a wonderful dad. But I was really scared and I was so unconscious at that point, so reeling from the trauma of my childhood. I didn't really understand what was going on. I had an abortion. My mum came with me to the abortion clinic. At no point did she say to me, having you was the most meaningful thing in my life. You know, maybe you could, you know, she did never. It was just like, yep, get rid of it. And so, Mm. um, you know, when I later, you know, when I later got married at 26 with the man I been going out with since I was 22. I said to him, I don't think I want to have children. And he was like, fine. And then at 29, when I'd been part of his big loving family for several years and had sort of begun to realize that maybe not all families were like my family, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe it'd be lovely. And I said, I think maybe I would like to have children. He was like, okay. So two huge decisions, but you know, for us, they were not difficult. But unfortunately, I was unable to conceive. I had an operation to check and there was absolutely no damage from the abortion. No reason was ever found why I couldn't conceive. Everything was fine. But during those years of trying to conceive, you know, my mum showed no real interest in that until towards the end of that process when she and her husband said, you know, we could pay for you to have IVF. But it was too late. You know, my marriage was too far on the rocks at that point with my infertility and my husband's mental health traumas, which were coming out as addictions. So I don't think my mum ever really longed for grandchildren. I don't think she ever empathised with my loss. But that is interesting because my mum now has quite severe dementia and she is in a nursing home and quite interestingly, as many of us may have experienced, dementia often releases the shadow side of the personality, which can be very hard. But for me, it's actually, my mum is now able to show sweetness and tenderness, which has been brought up huge amounts of grief for me because there was part of me that goes, it's too late for that. I needed that a long time ago. But I actually then worked with that grief and allowed myself to feel it and sort of knowing it was in there all along, but she was too traumatized to access it, kind of gave me some comfort. And I'm actually able to hold her in my arms and mother her. And she is able to take comfort from me. And that's been very healing. But that's my story for other people who have a better relationship with their mothers. It can be a real fracture point, childlessness, because obviously It's a difficult one to empathise with because as a friend of mine who is a mother said, in order for me to really empathise with your experience, I have to imagine my son dying. You know, that's the only way I can really access the depths of how you feel. And I thought that is a kind of emotional and psychological gymnastics one really can't expect of a lot of people. I mean, I do have friends who are mothers who can empathise with me, but an empathetic mother of a childless daughter is rare. 
and the lionization and admiration and glory of sisters and brothers with children can be so hard to be around. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And, you know, I want to say, obviously, how wonderful that your mother had a golden shadow. Um, <laughs> yes. Which can happen in like that. And I was also connecting with that huge sadness of her not being able to say when you were going to the abortion that having you was wonderful and, mm. you know, has meant so much to me. The aloneness of that moment is is really strong. And mm. it sort of underlines how much we need to build up the internal mother inside that looks after us and gives us the strength to be able to say, you know, it's not too late. Thank you very much for this late love. It's better than no love. Yes. And actually the inner mother, I there's a section about it in my book because it was a huge part of my recovery. I was beginning to change my self-talk. I began to realise that I had this incredibly hostile inner critic that I had internalised from my childhood. And my mother, bless her, has her own and she she shared it with me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I realised that I said things to myself I would never say to anyone else. I was so harsh really, really vile to myself. It was like a, a sort of relentless internal bullying that was going on all the time. And the first thing I did is I started to say those things out loud. I was on my own and I was living alone. And I'd say them out loud just to shock myself. I started to catch what one amazing kind of author around this, their name eludes me, but I'll share, calls radio crazy. <laughs> and, you know, when you would hear them out loud, I'd be absolutely appalled you know, you stupid bitch, you're late again, you're blah, 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 you know, this really, really harsh voice. And I began to try and substitute those voices with a softer internal voice. And then one day I was talking to my cat. I just got home from somewhere and I was like, hello, darling, how are you? Do you want a tickle? Do you fancy something to eat? You know, and just this, and I realized that's the voice of my inner mother, this incredibly tender, sweet, gentle. So I, it might sound a little bit strange, but I started to really apply that to myself. So instead of like, if I was exhausted and I was pushing myself to do more work, I'd say, darling, I think you need a little nap. And I, would, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I'd say it inside. And gradually over time, I noticed that having what I later learned was self-compassion actually enabled me to become a much more resilient person and I became as nice to myself as I am to other people. And I don't think I could have got through the things I've got through had I not learned how to be self-compassionate. But when you haven't been able to internalize the voice of a, of a kind and gentle mother in your childhood, it is work to find it. I mean, therapy is such an important part of that because I think when we are with someone you know, of the, the same or opposite sex, the good mother or the good father. I think one of the things we get from good therapy when, you know, when the relationship works is we internalize a kinder way to think about ourselves. I mean, that's one of the gifts we give to our clients as therapists, but we have to do it for ourselves too. So how do you begin to find a plan B? It's funny. I think, I mean, sometimes I say to people, if I'm on my plan B, it's only because it's my second trip through the alphabet. Um, <laughs> you know, 
it's, yeah. it's always changing. Yeah, I think I'm on to plan about E or F at this precise moment. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm still evolving. I'm still changing. I remember once I, one of my first sort of weekend retreats and someone came up to me at the end of the retreat and she said to me that she had this fantasy that at the end of the retreat, I was going to hand out envelopes. And inside the envelope would be each person's plan B. And she said she just had this idea that Jodie would just tell me what to do with my life and I could just go off and do it. Mm. And I, you know, we laughed, but I thought about it and I was like, yeah, but, you know, even if I could, even if I had that kind of crystal ball, it wouldn't work. It would be like setting someone up on a blind date. No one other than ourselves and sometimes even not ourselves can really intuit what's going to set our heart and soul on fire again. We have to keep experimenting. And I think a plan B is something that actually comes out of the grief process because it's very difficult to know or predict who we're going to be when we come to the end of that transformational process. So one of the things I do say to people is try not to make, if possible, too many irrevocable changes while you're grieving, because there can be a desire to have some agency. The ego kind of wants to do something about this. So we can move countries, you know, leave our partners, change partners, you know, do some big, big things. And it's like, if possible, try to keep the changes small because you're making changes for who you are now but you haven't met who you're going to be as you come out of this process. And transformation, I mean, it looks great on Instagram. You know, people very happy to talk about butterflies and all of this. It's not. Transformation feels like shit. Your whole life has just exploded. And I say, think about the caterpillar. You know, it's just munching along, eating green leaves. And then one day it starts spinning itself into a cocoon, a dark, hot cave, and then its body turns to mush and it has no idea that what's going on. That to me is transformation. The butterfly is just the bit that goes on Instagram. And I think we have to recognise that this is not the moment when we're in the mush to be making plans for our future. We need to be tending to our soul and we need to be tending to our grief. The plan B will come and it won't be what we're expecting. Although one of the things we have to watch out for is what I call a Mother Teresa syndrome, plan B, which is kind of arises from pronatalism, this idea that if I'm not a mother, I have to do something extraordinary with my life to sort of prove my worthiness. And one of the things I'll say to women is, if you were a mum, would you have felt the need to do that? And they're like, no. I said, so why as a childless woman would you need to do that? I mean, if that's where your heart and soul's desire is, if that's how you want to express yourself in the world, go for it. But if it's just so other people can say, wow, she couldn't have children, but she did blah, blah, blah. Isn't that amazing? We need to watch out for those ones because they lead to burnout. I'm sort of thinking of a slightly different image from the butterfly, mm -hmm. that the way to get to the future is to follow the breadcrumbs. Mm. And a breadcrumb is just something that you enjoy, which, you know, let's say it's going to the opera, then you go to the opera. It doesn't mean you're going to become an opera singer, mm -hmm. but somehow the breadcrumbs, if you follow them, some of them go nowhere, but they do eventually fit together into a path. Yes. And, and as you look back on them, they seem to make some sense. They, they generally don't at the time, but when we look back on them, we, we can see a path through the breadcrumbs. And I think following a little glimmers of joy can be really, really important. And actually feeling joy whilst we're grieving can be very hard. We can actually, you know, particularly in, in the depression stage of grief, we can really have long experiences of anhedonia 
when actually even things that used to guarantee to bring us joy just completely fall flat. But as we start to integrate our grief into our identity, integrate our loss into our identity, there will be little glimmers of joy and they can be our breadcrumbs and they can be really important to follow. Sometimes childhood dreams can re-emerge and some of those may have actually kind of run their course like you say, you might follow that breadcrumb and find actually, no, it's not really super satisfying anymore. But there might be something within that dream. It might need to be unpacked. There's an element in it. There's a sort of breadcrumb within the breadcrumb. They go, oh, but that bit of it. You know, one of the things I would say is follow that in the quickest, cheapest, sort of least disruptive way you can. You know, you don't need to go and train as an opera singer. Just go to the opera. You don't need to leave your job and buy a camper van and move to the Orkneys and start studying birds. Just go on a weekend, you know, course or something. It's like, allow yourself to play a little with the idea of who you are. And also the people you meet when you're doing those things can be wonderful too, because you're putting yourself in new places. And you have a wonderful exercise of looking back at who you were Mm. and what you enjoyed at three ages. You do sort of five just before you reach puberty and at about 15 or... Yes. So tell me about that. Yeah, I think that's called my Russian dolls exercise. Thank you. You've read my book. I think it's about those... I mean, particularly just before puberty is a really powerful one because... I have many nieces and it's been amazing watching them at that stage at sort of, you know, nine, 10, when they're becoming really quite powerful beings who really, really know their own mind. And then the hormones kick in and I almost feel like waving at them saying, see you on the other side, you know, see you when you're about 22. And I'm always curious to see what of that 10 year old girl will survive and be transmuted by the transition, you know, into being a woman. When we're five, we're often very, very clear. And we haven't necessarily been socialized out of what it's okay or appropriate for us to like or love or enjoy. You know, when I look back at myself at five and 10, I'm much more like that now than I was from 15 to 45. (laughs) You know, the menopause has actually brought me back to that feisty, I don't climb as many trees, but there's a lot of other things that are, are very much back. And I think it's by giving ourselves a snapshot of those ages we can be reminded of what feeds our soul, what brings us meaning. You know, for me, it's always been about understanding things. And it's also when I go back to my five-year-old self and my 10-year-old self, deeply connected to the natural world and also to the unseen world. Society told me that those kinds of things weren't where I should put my attention But actually, I was quite a a spiritual child, quite a religious child, because that was the framework around me. I'm not religious anymore. But, you know, now I'm living in Ireland and I'm really connecting to my half Irish roots. The other world was always present for me. And being in contact with that again is, is very meaningful. But I lost that completely. So in a moment, we're going to look at a letter. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
If you'd like to participate in The Meaningful Life, you can help us by becoming a supporter. You unlock all the bonus material. Or you'd like to take part by taking my newsletter. The current one is about the six kinds of friends that everybody needs to have. Or you can participate by sending me a letter. Go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And this is a letter from a woman. I'm 36 and my two and a half year relationship has broken down, partly because I was ready to have children and he was still unsure, even though he'd talked about children almost from the get go. So I'm left dealing with two different sets of emotions profound sadness about losing my partner and anger that I might have to say goodbye to having children. It took me almost four years to recover from the last breakup with the pattern, I will be 40 and I feel that time is running out for me. What is also annoying is I'd started to face some of my personal demons and I'm angry too that my boyfriend didn't give me the time to show that I had changed. So what did you think when you read this story, Jodie? Dear letter writer, first of all, I just want to say that I'm really feeling, you know, your pain over this breakup and particularly at this time of life as a woman, it's extremely hard. And I guess I wanted to say that your boyfriend, first of all, he said he was still unsure. You know, this is not unusual. You know, many people are thinking deeply about whether to have children or not in our current climate. I think the choice to be child-free is one that is is on the rise. I'm glad that he was able to articulate with you that he was feeling ambiguous about it because there are many cases where partners who are ambiguous aren't clear about that and the relationships can go on for much longer before that becomes clear. It feels really clear that you you do want to have children. I would say that whether you find a new partner to have children with or not within the time frame of your fertility, because everyone's fertility is different, there are other ways to pursue parenthood if that feels like the most important thing for you. You know, becoming a solo mother by choice is an option now in a way that it hasn't been in the past. It's very different for your generation than it was for the generations previously. However, I also know that many people may offer that to you as a solution, as like, oh, you could just have a baby on your own. And actually, that may not be what you want. Most of us don't. Most of us really, really want to have a child within a partnership. And it's okay to want that. So it's also okay to push back against people who say, hey, why don't you have a baby on your own? So I think that something you said about your profound sadness, there is a word for that profound sadness. It's called grief. You are grieving the end of a really, really important relationship for you. You know, the fact that it took you four years to grieve your previous relationship would suggest that, you know, you you feel these things very, very deeply. Or alternatively, you get stuck in the numb phase of the grief. I was, uh, yes, Andrew's nailed it as well. (laughs) I would say that perhaps with support to help you process the grief, you know, it may not necessarily take as long as in the past. And I can feel, and Andrew does as well, that time is of the essence for you. Now, when you said that I feel that time is running out for me, I would like to offer you that that is the story that our culture is telling us, that actually it is only through parenthood that your life will be meaningful and quote unquote successful. There is no time limit on that. 
there are many other roots to meaning in life other than parenthood. We just don't see them in the culture. They're not valorized in the culture. They are out there. However, being sort of with one foot in hoping to be a parent and one foot in considering childlessness is hugely, hugely complicated and painful. It is a form of something called ambiguous loss. It's, it's a particular type of grief where something is very psychologically present for you, which is your future children, but they are physically absent. So I would say really develop self-compassion, like I was talking about earlier. Have a look at Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. I'd also really recommend a previous interview of Andrew's, the, the wonderful Carla McLaren, who I'm a huge fan of, helping you to understand your anger. There's a lot of information and power for you in your anger. You mention it twice in your letter. I think your anger has some information for you. And I think Carla's work might help you unpack that. And I send you lots of love. Yep. The question Carla asks is, what are these feelings trying to tell you? What is your anger trying to tell you? Because my suspicion is your anger has never really been heard. It's sometimes sort of come out as rage. Rage is different from anger. It's often a whole load of anger that hasn't been processed. And uh, anger in women is about as, as um, I was going to make a horrible, it's not very popular. Let's just leave it at that. So you really do need to have permission to be angry. And anger tells us things we don't really want to hear. So listen to the anger. The other thing I would say is that there is another choice. This is living in Berlin as opposed to Ireland. You can have a child with somebody else. There's a lot of gay men that want to be parents. You can have a supportive relationship with somebody else where you're both parents together. There doesn't have to be a a sexual relationship between the two of you. There can be the bond of bringing up a child together. That's another thing to think about. But I hope I'm not offering another bingo sort of kind of offer. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, I mean, co-parenting is an option. There are options out there. There's also an option to do the work, to grieve this relationship, to listen to your anger and your demons, as you call them, and see what they have to say to help you forward. I think you need to do both, to be perfectly Mm. honest. You can never do too much of exploring because sometimes if you look into the child-free stuff, then a whole load of new anger pops up, new demons pop up that have to be dealt with, whether you're going to have a child or not. So grief work, is it's never wasted. Never. So we've been talking about how to find meaning and be child-free. So that really does feel like I need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Can I just say thank you for this question? And <laughs> even though I was thinking about it when I should have been sleeping last night. It's, Sorry. <laughs> it's such a beautiful and important question. And so much of my work is around it. And then I just thought, oh my goodness, how do I answer that? I've written that for me, my curiosity about my own experience of being human and my desire and delight in helping others to explore their own, whether that's through my writing, speaking or private work, makes my life meaningful. And now that I'm croning, as I, which is another word I'm reclaiming, I will mm-hmm. be 60 next year. And the psychological process of shifting into an eldering mindset began when I was 55. I'm finding it meaningful to explore what it means to become a childless elder woman. How do we become elders, not just olders? And how might I help others make that transition too, so that we can be of service to our communities and become good ancestors? 
While we're talking about former programmes, have you come across Connie Zweig? She's a Jungian analyst and her book is subtitled Moving from Role to Soul. And I think we all need to move from role to soul. Mm. So, you know, I'm not just a therapist, I'm me, so to speak. And, you know, even if you are a parent, you need to move from role to soul. Absolutely. Her, her book is one I, I, I adore and I recommend a lot because it's also one of the very few books about the ageing and the conscious ageing process that doesn't presume that everyone reading it is a parent mm. and has that kind of automatic hopeful role of grandparent as part of their meaning and their legacy. Connie is child-free by choice and then became a stepmother through marriage later in life, but she holds that identity very lightly. And that is such a great help. That is so rare. The presumption that every woman is a mother and a grandmother is so embedded in the culture and that every man is a father and a grandfather. And there seems to be something in finding meaning in something you write about, which is reconnecting to your source. Yes. Tell me I mean, about we were that. talking about when I was talking about, you know, being connected to the other world. And I think the source for me is, is a, a word which is a non-spiritual word which can really speak to that, you know, the, you know, what Jung called the, you know, the religious impulse, which is really a desire to seek meaning in something larger than ourselves and larger than our, than our human life. And that has always been hugely important to me as a child onwards and, and remains important. And for me, it's become much more nature-based. I've always felt a deep sense of awe and beauty and connection, you know, with natural beauty. And interestingly, I'm feeling quite a lot of anger these days uh, (laughs) around what is happening to the natural world. And I think a big part of my meaning going forward may be seeing what I can do with that anger and also how I can support younger generations with the incredibly shitty inheritance they're getting. Well, unfortunately, this is where our conversation ends for most people. But if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation continues and you really don't want to miss what we're going to be talking about next, which is how to get your mojo back, which I think is something that we could all benefit from. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, Here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.